Haven't you ever wished to save someone beyond saving? No matter what the cost. This is uncharted territory. The body has to adjust, of course. We weren't built for this kind of thing. You'd be surprised at the things you find when you go looking. who are savage and lonely, staring at the stars so often, our empathy tired and the hungry emptiness filled the sky, leaving a void above a landscape of cosmic ruin. I am your solo practitioner, Travis Maxwell Boone. Tonight I ask you to look up past the stars into the infinite, and I humbly ask you to Join us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Radio Public, or visit our official website, thenightclub.fireside.fm, for other podcatchers, our blog entries, and direct from the void downloads and streaming. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Nightclub Podcast and reach out and touch pure evil using our email. The nightclub podcast at gmail.com. Give us a five-pointed pentagram rating and write up a review. I have charcoal voice this evening. I'm sipping some Rebel Yell Kentucky straight bourbon, chasing it with a little bit of Coca-Cola. And recently we've spent some time talking about rituals and realms. So now we will wonder at the inhabitants of our universe or utter absence thereof. Enrico Fermi was an Italian-American physicist known as the architect of the atom bomb. He invented the first nuclear reactor, won a Nobel Prize, and fed the fields of statistical mechanics, quantum theory, and nuclear and particle physics. At lunch with his peers in the physics field, Fermi posited that given the probability of life in the universe, we should be aware by now of other interstellar civilizations. But we aren't. He asked, where are they? This pontificating led to the Fermi paradox, which breaks down like this. Within the observable universe, there are a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars, 
with trillions upon trillions of planets orbiting said stars. The likelihood of life developing is staggering based on the potentially habitable planets that exist. The Kardashev scale places mankind below its type 1 civilization, who should be able to harness the power and resources of their planet. Type 2 civilizations can capture the energy of its star, and Type 3, their god tier. Galactic titans capable of controlling every star within reach. Due to the vast expanse of space and the calculations involving that, and the span of time the universe has been existing, some civilization should have made itself known. The intense uphill battle for life to form, much less thrive, could prove to be why we don't see signs of extraterrestrial life. Once this rare occurrence happens, perhaps that thriving new life can't evolve, or does, and ends up destroying itself, as the snake eats its tail. Maybe we shouldn't go looking. Maybe we don't really want to discover what lurks in the blackest depths. A god-tier civilization could be watching, smirking and scoffing at the lesser's achievements, only to bring forth annihilation once those lessers show any true advancement. The Drake Equation, All the Kardashev Scale, the Fermi Theories and Questions, it's all really a barrier in front of the idea that we may be all alone and outer space is all dead. If eucrotic cells never emerge, then the cerebral web never spreads. SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, conducts direct planetary observation, sends and attempts to detect electromagnetic signals. We are searching for something else to help quell the loneliness, the dread, the eternal fear. American astronomer, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, author, science popularizer, and science communicator, Carl Sagan, host of the essential 13-part PBS series, Cosmos, A Personal Voyage, sent the first message meant to be found into space. The Pioneer plaques were placed on board Pioneer 10 and 11 with illustrations such as a schematic of a hyperfine transition of hydrogen, the most abundant element in the universe, figures of male and female human beings based on the drawings of Leonardo da Vinci, the sun's position relative to the galactic center as well as a diagram of our solar system. Carl Sagan also sent Voyager out with the Voyager Golden Records. These phonographs contain sounds of the Earth, such as waves, bird songs, laughter, and 55 different languages, some of which are dead. The music of Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven were also included, as well as Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. This inclusion was met with some criticism that rock music was adolescent, to which Carl Sagan replied, There are a lot of adolescents on the planet. 
The recordings themselves can be found on SoundCloud, YouTube, and other resources online. Tying this into cosmic horror, which asks us to peer into the abyss and ask ourselves, what if there are monsters hiding in the darkness between the stars? The thought of being completely alone drives us to conjure up the unexplainable, the Lovecraftian, for we fear what we do not understand, and that is the essence of cosmic horror. This evening's midnight ritual is going to force us to face those ideas. Not only life elsewhere in the universe, but life in another elsewhere. A separate dimension of terrors unspeakable and entities from there taking shape to set our senses ablaze and our hearts sinking forever like a stone into the void. In our midnight ritual, we break down films scene by scene, grab a drink, settle in by the fire, gaze up into the unknown. If you have not seen 2016's The Void, stop listening now. Void is a 2016 Canadian cosmic horror tour de force, written and directed by Stephen Kostansky and Jeremy Gillespie, members of the Astron 6 Filmmaking Collective, starring Aaron Poole, Kenneth Welsh, Daniel Fathers, Kathleen Monroe, and Ellen Wong. This film came to be because of an offhand comment by master filmmaker Guillermo del Toro. He and Jeremy Gillespie had spoke while both working at Pinewood Studios, and Del Toro stated he wanted to make an H.P. Lovecraft film in a way that hadn't been done before. This remark led to the imagery of the void, and its more otherworldly unknowns. The practical effects in the film were completely crowdfunded through Indiegogo, and since both Kostansky and Gillespie were working on David Ayer's Suicide Squad in the special effects and makeup departments, they were able to receive help from that crew as well. Gillespie says of the film's production, Every single thing was the biggest challenge. It was a soul-crushing nightmare. Everybody was pushed to the limit on this movie. The one ray of hope we got was the cast, which came together at the last second. The film premiered at Fantastic Fest and later showed at the Toronto After Dark Film Festival. It had been favorably reviewed by Bloody Disgusting, Dread Central, and others, and it seems to have a strong cult following, paying tribute to horror masters like the aforementioned Lovecraft 
as well as John Carpenter and Clive Barker, I'm certain over time this film's legacy and appreciation will grow. Now, let the unbridled descent into madness begin. Because there is a hell, and this is worse. The film opens with a shot of some person's legs next to a stairway in a pool of blood and just past the deceased is a red door with a black triangle painted on it. A man bursts through the door to the outside, fleeing a desolate house in the dark countryside. A woman follows him, panicked and shrieking, when she is shot from behind by two men also exiting the house. The older of the two turns on a car's headlights to better see what act they intend to commit. As the younger man begins to empty out a gas can over the whimpering woman, the older man lights a cigarette. They both stand over her as she begs for her life and toss the cigarette, igniting her and then leaving in the car. All of this was being watched by a stranger in the woods, white-clad, cloaked in a robe and hood with the same black triangle covering their face. The opening title credits show us an empty, rustic world, then turns to the stars to reveal the void. Down some back road along the tree line, Officer Daniel Carter is awoken by his dispatch checking in, when out of the woods stumbles the man who fled the house with the black triangle on the door. Carter assumes the man has had one too many to drink and approaches him only to discover he is badly injured. Taking action, Carter speeds off to the nearest medical facility, a hospital in Marsh County that is nearly vacant, having moved most of its staff and resources to a new location due to a fire that had damaged the building. Carter asserts that dispatch call ahead and let them know that he is specifically bringing in a patient. He arrives at Marsh County Memorial Hospital only to find no one waiting for them. Apparently, the call never made it through. Two nurses assist Carter and one nurse, Bev, asks, What's his story, Danny? To which Carter responds, Uh, he's bleeding, Bev. It's clear they are all familiar with one another. They rush the injured man past a room where a nurse in training is torturing a patient by showing him pictures of various medical procedures. He's disgusted and only wants to watch Night of the Living Dead on television. She tells the annoyed patient that statistically you're more likely to die in a hospital than anywhere else. Then she offers him a catheter out of boredom, but he decides to go to sleep. Carter makes small talk with a pregnant girl named Maggie and her grandfather in the waiting room. They remark on Dr. Powell sticking around despite the fire when Carter hears a ruckus and walks in on Dr. Powell, Bev, and the other nurse sedating the injured man, James. He appears to have needle marks all over his arms, and Carter is appalled. He bled on me. 
At the nurse's station, Bev chides Kim, the trainee, for not boxing up the hospital's files, while the other nurse, Allison, brings Carter a cup of coffee. They seem a little awkward while speaking, and she tells him it's nice to see him before Dr. Powell walks in, asking if he's interrupting anything. Allison says no, and wants to go make sure Bev isn't murdering her intern. Powell tells Carter that James will be unresponsive for a while, and goes on to give Carter some advice. They have a little heart-to-heart here. He tries to relate to Danny and Allison losing their child by saying that losing his own daughter took a long time for him to recover from. They acknowledge their shared pain with the brief touch on the shoulder. As Carter walks the corridors of the hospital, he hears a quiet cry from one of the rooms. He finds Bev standing over the sleeping patient from earlier, slowly retracting a scalpel out of his eye. She then turns around to Carter, showing off her freshly skinned face. Bev steps toward Carter with the scalpel, and after warning her to stop, he pulls his gun and shoots her dead. The sound design here has the ringing ears one would experience after a gunshot in such close quarters. With Carter left standing before this grisly scene, Allison, Kim, and Dr. Powell come to investigate and are just as horrified. Carter stammers about calling the sensitive in, but heads for the restroom where he vomits and passes out. Visions of dark clouds filled with rolling thunder, a barren land and pulsating flesh, followed by an ominous floating pyramid. Daniel Carter comes to with Allison and Dr. Powell by his side on the restroom floor. They tell him a state trooper has arrived and tries to get him to check into a room, but he refuses. The trooper, an older gentleman named Mitchell, questions Carter about the shooting and reveals that he was looking for the injured man James, about 20 miles north of Marsh County Memorial. They found a house that Mitchell describes as a butcher shop. Mitchell takes Carter's gun and tells him, Your dad was a stand-up cop. Before asking, Wonder what he'd think if he saw this shit show. The defeated Carter goes off to call in the shooting, but the hospital's phone is dead. He heads outside to his car, which has his radio, and is also dead air. Frustrated and sitting in his cruiser, Carter notices a hooded figure, the one from earlier in the film, standing not too far off in the parking lot. He steps out of the vehicle, and the hooded figure springs forth once the lights of the lampposts go out, and the loud sound of a horn blowing can be heard. Carter reaches for his holster. No gun. The hooded figure pins him on the pavement and drives a blade deep into his chest before Carter can push him off. He stands and realizes he's surrounded by people dressed exactly the same, cloaked in white, with black triangles for faces. Carter races inside to a worried Allison, and we cut to Bev's blood-soaked body with spider-like legs fluttering out of her mouth. Carter passes out from blood loss as Allison and Powell direct a scared Kim to apply pressure to his wound. While unconscious, Carter sees more visions of the dark clouds, a human figure under a hospital sheet, and the silhouette of a man in front of a bright triangle. 
When Carter wakes up, he, Allison, Kim, and Mitchell wonder who all the hooded people are just standing outside, and Carter suggests barricading the doors when they all suddenly hear James screaming in his room. Mitchell and Carter are stopped dead in their tracks upon entering. James, handcuffed to his overturned bed, is pleading for help while on the other side of the room, lumbering and wailing is a monstrosity. This creature appears as mounds of rolling flesh with the vague distorted semblance of Bev's split open face and its tentacle appendages are slowly seeking out the restrained James. Mitchell, dumbfounded, shoots the thing with his handgun, but to no avail. Carter then breaks the bed's railings, setting James free and they all escape, closing the room's door. After breaking an emergency axe free as well, Carter suggests he and Mitchell head for the cruisers when a gunshot and a scream blast forth from outside the lobby. The older man and his younger counterpart from earlier shoot their way in. James grabs a blade and clutches Allison, sending everyone into a frenzy. The older man aims his rifle at James, who is clearly scared of these men, while Carter and Powell try to defuse the situation. Meanwhile, the Bev creature breaks out, and Dr. Powell is fatally stabbed in the neck by James when he tries to talk him down. Maggie's grandfather sneaks up, punching James out, and to everyone's horror, the Bev creature drags Trooper Mitchell away. Carter follows with his axe and finds the grotesque beast burying its tentacles into the mouth and eye sockets of Mitchell. Backlit by a flickering fluorescent light dangling from the ceiling, Carter is struck by the creature and is sent flying. The older man and the younger man arrive and attack the Bev creature, shooting it and chopping at it with axes together. The beast screams and oozes pus, spurting blood, and the older man even decapitates Mitchell for good measure. With Dr. Powell dead, Carter and Allison argue with the two Avengers, who claim no one there can be trusted. The younger man shows them a wound on his neck from the last people they trusted. Carter tries to convince them that they don't know anything about what is going on. The older man says there are horns out there calling them all to this location. It appears these two have dealt with these cultists recently, and with Maggie on the verge of giving birth and a freakish being slain over a dead state trooper in a hospital encompassed by hooded figures, they agree to burn the body of the Night of the Living Dead fan and send it outside a blaze rolling on a gurney. Everyone still alive in the hospital gathers together to figure out the best course of action. Much arguing ensues, including death threats, face slaps, and spousal conflicts. Carter accuses Allison of hastily wanting to save Maggie's baby as making up for losing their child. But Allison convinces him otherwise. Carter makes a deal with the older man. They make their way to Carter's cruiser for his shotgun and some ammunition. And in turn, they get to keep Carter's gun. Now late into the night, the three men race to the car while Allison tries to comfort Maggie. She then heads for the medical supply room, while Carter and the other two retrieve the shotgun. As Allison gathers medicines for the upcoming birth, she is stalked by an undead Dr. Powell. At the cop car, Carter throws on his cruiser's lights 
illuminating a swath of cult members in flashes of blue and red, their blades all drawn as if ready for the kill. One of the hooded figures surprises the men and slashes the young man before it being shot dead by Carter, who says, I'm keeping the fucking gun. Once they are back in the hospital, Carter goes off to find Maggie with the older man. We find out that the young man's family was killed by the cult when they also notice that Dr. Powell's body isn't where they left it. Carter picks up Mitchell's gun, dripping with blood, and after stocking up in the med room, they hear a phone ringing. Carter and the older man enter Powell's office. Carter picks up the ringing phone and is greeted by none other than Dr. Powell. Powell knows about Carter's visions and offers to show him more. Powell says Bev found it all hard to understand, but his intentions are altruistic. At that moment, the older man opens a case containing photographs of various degrees in human mutilation and the hooded cult members. Carter demands Powell tell him where Allison is and what he's done. You're trying so hard to follow in your father's footsteps, Daniel, Powell says. Do you really want to follow him where he's gone? I understand how desperate loss can make you. Powell again is trying to relate his daughter's death with that of Allison and Carter's child, and he claims that what he's doing is going to make it right. All the while, the older man is thumbing through a journal filled with geometric shapes and cursive scribbling as Powell says he is helping Allison. In the box of mutilations lies the image of a red door marked with a black triangle. Kim is reluctantly left to take care of Maggie as Carter and the older man and his young cohort leave to find Allison, but prior to leaving, they interrogate James. Threatening to break his fingers with a hammer, James spills his beans. He tells them that Powell is behind everything, which is something they already know. James was lured into a trap house where he and the other junkies were drugged, forced to have sex, performed sacrifices, and he himself witnessed how Powell made people change. Carter, James, and the father and son figures proceed into the basement with Kim guiding them via walkie-talkie and hospital blueprints. Just beyond the morgue, they find a set of stairs leading further down that aren't on the schematics. Kim exclaims surprise at the sub-basement, but they march on. Allison then awakens, sedated and unable to move. Powell is there talking to her, describing all of his years performing surgeries as a release. This is uncharted territory, he says, peeling pieces of flesh off of his body while turned away from Allison. He asks her if she's ever wanted to save someone beyond saving, no matter the cost. She cries as Powell tells her that losing his daughter Sarah sent him on a path of discovery. You'd be surprised at the things you find when you go looking. Carter and the others find a room deep in the dark bowels of the sub-basement, 
and make light by way of flare. Esoteric symbols cover the floor and James begins rambling. The older man tells Carter they found a room like this full of bodies at the farmhouse. On a table, there they saw a person half transformed into a monstrosity. The older man thought it was a surgical procedure. James says, no, no, more like a nightmare. Kim is still trying to radio Carter when Maggie says he needs to be here and her grandfather comforts her. Maggie has a contraction and Kim administers a drug via syringe. Deeper now in the uncharted abyss, Carter and his crew come across for the third time in the film the black triangle on a red door. Visions briefly flood Carter's mind, but then they enter. Do you know where you go when you die? I do, Powell claims, his assured voice chiming in. You travel on, reborn into something else, like a caterpillar becoming a moth. Until now, I've only been able to trap the moth in its cocoon. The body has to adjust, of course, adapt. We weren't built for this kind of thing. I admit early on I made mistakes. And some of those earliest mistakes are still down here with us, Powell explains to Allison. In fact, they caused the fire that destroyed this hospital. You see, they want to die, but I won't let them. As Allison cries continuously, Powell asks her if this is the world she really wants. A world that takes life. Innocent life. Innocence tarnished. He tells her that the lifeline between mother and child is what ultimately killed her baby. He calls this nature's futility and says he can put a stop to all of it. I lost my daughter to the abyss. But tonight, I'm calling her back. Powell turns to Allison, his face flayed and bare muscle, just like Bev's. He lowers her sheet, uncovering her bulbous, shifting belly. Further down in what becomes the next layer of this hell, the four men light up another pitch-black room, revealing corpses upon corpses, some on tables, others dismembered, some hanging, akin to a slaughterhouse, the red glare from the flare painting the entire place in blood. A precursor of bloody floating feet leads to Kim finding Maggie's crotch blood-ridden. In the slaughter room, the older man grabs hold of James, but a weird vibration shakes him, his captive, meth head, everyone else, and the picture frame. The older man sees the ghost of a blood-splattered woman, James yelling, He's in his head! And then a sharp yet moist scrape of bone and sinew being sliced catches everyone's attention. Across the room, a corpse is slamming its own head repeatedly into a rigid pipe. All of the corpses begin to rise, cut and bleeding, disfigured and brazenly vengeful, attacking the unaware intruders. 
Upstairs, Kim is hesitating on carrying out a cesarean when the glass doors of the hospital's entrance come shattering down. Back in the basement, the older man sees the ghostly woman off in the distance and walks through the room of Powell's mistakes and through gunfire, which is holding the doctor's failures at bay. Kim screams she can't do it. Maggie's grandfather protests. James then tries to escape and he and Carter have a tussle when nearby a contorting corpse does an exorcist staircase crab walk towards them. It grabs hold of James and pulls him around a corner and begins smashing his head violently into the floor over and over and over. The hard thuds and wet slaps audible to the retreating officer. The grandfather is now begging Kim to help Maggie when his throat is suddenly slit from behind by his own granddaughter. Kim is in utter terror, and before her a smiling Maggie proclaims Dr. Powell is a great man and she is lucky to carry his child. Cult members escort her away as Kim takes an axe and finds somewhere to hide. Back downstairs, the younger man is following the older man along a dim gray corridor. The hallway then blends into the older man's house made evident by family pictures hanging on a wall. The older man is talking to himself in what appears to be a living room, turns on the younger man and pins him to the floor, saying it's your fault and you should have protected them. With the bloodied bodies of children laying about and the ghostly woman watching on, the younger man lights a flare and burns the older man, causing the house to vanish, revealing that they are still in the corridor. The older man now crying, apologizing, and questioning everything. As Kim hides, she hears an axe scraping across the floor, and a cult member is wielding it. Carter finally finds Allison lying on a table and holds her hand, caresses her pregnant stomach, and kisses her. But Powell's voice comes from the ether. Daniel, I know your secret. I saw it in your face the night Allison lost your child. Her hand turns to dust in Carter's, and he sees a fleshy mass squirming and tentacles spread out across the room up to the ceiling. As Powell goes on, I saw relief. Powell says he has given Allison what she truly wanted. Now she's a mother. He then asks, isn't she beautiful? Carter picks up his axe, knowing what he must do. Visions of his still-living wife beg him to stay, but he dismembers her as we see in shadow behind the glass of a closed door. The scene fades to black with a dreadful tone sustaining the blackness where the edges of a triangle start to glow. Carter is here in this temple with Powell asking him what he sees, and he tells him, I see a monster that thinks he's God. Powell sneers, I refuse to let death be the end. I defy God. There are things much older, older than time, and they have blessed me. Maggie then stabs Carter in the back and he falls over, Several cult members stand by as a transformed Dr. Powell towers over a kneeling Maggie. His figure is all black muscle and tendons, binding like a root system 
into his abdomen. He says his disciples have come to see his daughter's birth, and they have their own transformations, and Carter can see it all, only he must die first. Powell then kneels himself in front of the triangle. Watch the abyss open itself to me. Powell chants some no doubt dead language from another world, and the triangle begins to shift backwards, allowing a white hot light to pour into the room. Through incantation, Powell places his daughter into Maggie, and from her writhing belly bursts a whining, freakishly large being that walks on all fours, bearing its muscles, bones protruding, its face in the shape of a human skeleton, dragging Maggie's dead body behind it attached to her by an umbilical cord. Powell's demonic daughter. It stalks the old and young man, wrapping a tentacle around the older man, burying its tentacles into his body. It stalks the older man, climbing on top of him and burying its tentacle appendages deep into his body. It's clear now that there is no way out of this, so the older man douses himself in a liquid from a bottle and tells the younger man to do it. The younger man lights a flare and woefully tosses it, sending this father figure and the daughter demon up in flames. Powell preaches on as the dying Carter grabs his axe. I can see it all before me. The infinite astral workings. It's beautiful. Stars positioned in the cosmic beyond blur and give way to a huge pyramid among now blood-red murky skies. As a wet thud reveals Carter's axe embedded in Powell's shoulder, with light in the void beyond the triangle dancing and bouncing along the blade's wooden grip. Unscathed, however, Powell lifts Carter up by his throat, acts firmly in place, and promises Allison. Carter relinquishes his life, and Powell promises this isn't the end. But Daniel Carter erupts with conviction and spears Powell through the portal, into the void, the gateway disappearing, and the temple now silent, until it begins collapsing in on itself. Elsewhere in this dungeon, the younger man is running from the daughter creature as the foundation quakes. The walls start to narrow as the monster draws nearer, and just like in Hellraiser, the walls close shut on the monster, and reality is restored. The young man is now back in the hospital's hallways, no terrors in sight. Filled with grief and horror, he makes his way through the hospital until he finds the terrified Kim and he breaks down, just as dawn breaks. But in another elsewhere, the dark clouds roll above a craggy, bleak landscape in the dimension of the void. Daniel and Allison Carter take in the sight of the massive, mountainous black pyramid hovering above. Thunder and lightning rumble and crack as the lovers join hands. By and by, we're going to be the king. By and by, we're going to be the king. By and by, we're going to be the king.
with this ritual coming to an end, we are the ones making our way through the void. This film deals with loss, grief, guilt, and loneliness. Powell probed the unknown and the ancient to try and cure his grief and loneliness. Allison fed into her loss, and the older man, who tried to protect the younger man, fell to guilt, blame placed elsewhere. But these themes, the need of the cult members and the junkies to feel anything, it all goes back to our aforementioned what if. What if we really are all alone, as it seems? Or what if we are merely alone here, where our senses don't deceive us, where we can believe what we see? What if the static over the radio is trying to tell us of another world? Are we truly ready to reach out beyond the vast distance, beyond the space, into the void? Could we handle the unimaginable? This is getting to the very fundamentals of cosmic horror. The fact that the idea of what's possible is capable of driving us mad. How can we hope to cope with what we may find when we go looking for it? Besides nothing but stellar performances from everyone in this film, especially Kenneth Welsh and Aaron Poole, I have to give credit to the writers of this film for sort of explaining but not really explaining the lore behind what's happening. The lore behind the pyramid, the body horror Lovecraftian monstrosities, the cult members. The plot does explain itself and it is a minimal plot, but that's because what's first and foremost here is the ultimate cosmic fear. What if we aren't alone? What else is out there? From the blowing apocalyptic horns to the ritual killings, you're left not knowing whether or not this is some sort of biblical, satanic, who knows what else. You're only left with a few vestiges of whatever this otherworldly, esoteric shit is. And sometimes I love a film that can do that. Leave the door wide open so we can wonder and wander the void. I want to thank you for communing with me. I've been Travis Maxwell Boone. Stay spooky, bitches.